0: Hello, and welcome to the Neshama Project podcast, where we explore spiritual tools to promote human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. This week, I'd like to explore two different areas. Uh, One is the month of Elul, which we're just about to enter in the Hebrew calendar, which is the last month of the year before Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year, which begins on the first of the month of Tishrei and Elul is a month of spiritual preparation. And we read a series of Torah portions that come at the end of the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy. And then we restart the Torah after the High Holidays with the book of Genesis. The first thing I'd like to do today is read an excerpt from a book on the holidays in general, the Jewish holidays in general, and the high holidays in particular, called This Is Real, and You Are Completely Unprepared, The Days of Awe as a Journey of Transformation by Rabbi Alan Lu. This excerpt is from his chapter on the month of Elul, which is the month that I mentioned before, that we are in right now. And in particular, it's a excerpt, a section on Parshat Re'eh, which is this week's Torah portion. Look, I put before you this day a blessing and a curse. So begins Parshat Re'eh, the weekly Torah portion we read as the month of Elul begins. Look, pay attention to your life. Every moment in it is profoundly mixed. Every moment contains a blessing and a curse. Everything depends on seeing our lives with clear eyes, seeing the potential blessing in each moment as well as the potential curse, choosing the former, forswearing the latter. Parashat Re'eh begins with a concretization of this spiritual reality a ritual that renders this invisible reality visible. As the Israelites crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, they staged a dramatic pageant. They wrote the word of God on twelve great stones and placed the stones on the peak of Mount Gerizim. Half of the nation of Israel stood on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, and the other half stood on the slopes of Mount Ebal across the valley. Standing in the valley between the two mountains, the priestly tribe, the Levites, faced Mount Gerizim and intoned a series of blessings. And all the people said, Amen. Then the Levites faced the slopes of Mount Ebal and intoned a series of curses, and all the people said, Amen, again. The message of this ritual was clear. The will of God is present every moment. Every moment contains the capacity for good and evil, life and death a blessing and a curse, and everything depends on our choice. Look, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life so that you may live, Moses repeats in the ringing peroration to the book of Deuteronomy. We learn a number of things from this. We learn that this business of choosing good over evil, life over death, is precisely a matter of life and death. Our lives quite literally depend on it, and we learn that it is a matter of consciousness also. We have to come to see our life very clearly, clearly enough so that we can discern the will of God in it, so that we can tell the difference between the blessings and the curses, so that these things are arrayed before us as clearly as mountains, as we intone their names from the valley from the valley in between, that sliver of eternity on which we stand and that we call the present moment. This is why we are advised to spend the month of Elul in the regular practice of introspection, self-examination, and silence. We no longer perform the great pageant of the blessings and the curses, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, but this pageant was a ritual, and the inner process that this ritual was trying to express in visual form persists. Today we have our own ritualization of it, the days of awe, the high holy days, The time when it is made clear equally clear to us that everything depends on our own moral and spiritual choices and although we no longer have the two great mountains to help us see this choice in concrete form we do have the month of elul a time to gaze upon the inner mountains to devote serious attention to bringing our lives into focus a time to clarify the distinction between the will of god and our own willfulness to identify that in us which yearns for life and that which clings to death, that which seeks good and that which is fatally attracted to the perverse, to find out who we are and where we are going. All the rabbis who comment on this period make it clear that we must do these things during the month of Elul. We must set aside time each day of Elul to look at ourselves, to engage in self-evaluation and self-judgment, to engage in cheshbon hanefesh, literally a spiritual accounting. But we get very little in the way of practical advices how we might do this. So allow me to make some suggestions. Prayer. The Hebrew word for prayer is tefillah. The infinitive form of this verb is lehit palel, to pray, a reflexive form denoting action that one performs on oneself. Many scholars believe that the root of this word comes from an Ugaritic verb for judgment, and that the reflexive verb, Lahit palel, originally must have meant to judge oneself. This is not the usual way we think of prayer. Ordinarily, we think we should pray to ask for things or to bend God's will to our own, but it is no secret to those who pray regularly and with conviction that one of the deepest potentials of prayer is that it can be a way we come to know ourselves. This is true in at least two ways. First, when we pray, we stand before God, we invoke God's presence, we see ourselves through God's unblinking gaze. From this point of view, it becomes rather more difficult to engage in the kind of self-deception and highly selective interpretation of data we usually employ to make assessments of ourselves. God isn't as easy to deceive as we are. God has the annoying tendency of taking everything into account and not just the aspects of our experience that make us look good or bad, if that's what we're up to. I have either meditated or prayed every day for the better part of the last 30 years. There have been a few occasions during this time when I've done something I knew to be wrong at the time that I did it. These times, for most of us, are rather rare, Most of the time, the negative, destructive things we do are done unconsciously. The remedy for this, of course, is simply to become more conscious, more aware. But what about those rare times when consciousness is not the problem? What about the times when we are perfectly conscious to begin with, when we say to ourselves, I know this is wrong, I know this is going to be hurtful and destructive both to myself and to others, but damn it, I'm going to do it anyway. After performing such a deed, it is possible to go through much of one's life in denial or to construct elaborate justifications for why you did it. But it is impossible to employ such strategies while standing before God. Then the naked truth of what we have done cannot be denied, and all our justifications crumble to dust. Standing before God, we see ourselves, whether we want to or not. It is also the case that there is something about the mechanics of prayer that causes us to know ourselves. Like all spiritual activities, Jewish communal prayer has a point of focus. In this case, the words of the prayer book. We try to concentrate on these words, but inevitably our mind wanders and we lose our focus. When we realize that this has happened, we bring our focus back to the words of the prayer book. And as we do, we catch a glimpse of what it is that has carried us away. This is an important thing to see. The thoughts that carry our attention away are never insignificant thoughts and they never arise at random. We lose our focus precisely because these thoughts need our attention and we refuse to give it to them. This is why they keep sneaking up on our attention and stealing it away. This is how it is that we come to know ourselves as we settle deeply into the act of prayer. Most likely we are utterly unaware of all of this. After all, it operates well below the level of consciousness. Nevertheless, sitting there with the prayer book in our lap, we begin to become aware of the things we've been trying to avoid. We begin to see things from which we have been averting our gaze. Unconscious material begins to make its way toward the surface of our consciousness. So, during the month of Elul, one of the times we can use to examine ourselves, to engage in self-assessment and self-judgment, is the time spent in communal prayer. We can either devote more time to this activity, or, if we already pray quite regularly, now we can do so with a more focused intention to having to have our prayer become tefillah in the original sense, an act of self-judgment, an opportunity to see ourselves more clearly. Meditation also presents us with this opportunity. Although much has been written in recent years about the various aspects of Jewish spiritual activity that resemble meditation, nowhere is this similarity more apparent than in the month of Elul, when we are bidden to set aside time each day to look inward to take account of ourselves spiritually. Sitting each day at a specified time during the month of Elul, we may focus on our breath and our body, holding our body at the balance point between tension and relaxation, watching the breath as it enters and leaves the body just below the navel, letting the belly fill up with breath, then letting the breath go out. As we saturate these moments, these most fundamental aspects of our reality with awareness, We find that we are inhabiting ourselves in a deeper way than we usually do, and gradually this sense spreads to our heart and mind and our soul, and we find that we are also inhabiting our feelings, our thoughts, and our spirit more deeply, that we are filling these things with more consciousness than we usually do, that we are feeling them more immediately, more concretely, more viscerally. In short, that we are coming to inhabit the present tense reality of who we are, coming to see our real moral and spiritual position and what is required of us next. Exactly the same phenomena we described in relation to prayer arise when we meditate, that moment of insight where we bear witness to the thoughts that have carried our awareness awareness away. That moment when we come to know precisely what these thoughts are, precisely what it is that we aren't looking at, and so keeps sneaking up on us and grabbing our attention. In fact, it is just this process that the physiologist Herbert Benson identifies as the fundamental gesture of meditation, the gesture he calls the relaxation response. According to Benson, all the brainwave changes and psychospiritual effects we have come to associate with meditation are set off precisely at the moment when we come to realize that our mind has been carried away from the object of our concentration, and we resolve to gently bring it back. When we were speaking of prayer, it was the words of the prayer book that we were trying to focus on. Here, in meditation, it might be the breath, and it might be the body. It might be a mantra, and it might be a visualization. But in all these cases, the result is the same. We come to see ourselves more clearly. We come to see the things we either will not or cannot see. And finally, Alan Lu writes, focus on one thing. It may not be realistic to expect a significant number of people to suddenly begin showing up at prayer minions or meditation groups during the month of Elul. Some of us are simply not made to engage in these activities, not in Elul, not ever. Many will never get over finding the daily prayer service tedious and opaque. Many others will always either be frightened to death or bored to tears by the prospect of meditation and the blank wall of self it keeps throwing us up against so relentlessly. So I'm pleased to inform you that it is perfectly possible to fulfill the ancient imperative to begin becoming more self-aware during this time without doing these things. Let me recommend a simpler method, and you won't even have to set aside a special time to practice this. You have set aside the time already. Just choose one simple and fundamental aspect of your life and commit yourself to being totally conscious and honest about it for the 30 days of Elul. A world in a grain of sand, as the poet William Blake reminded us, everything we do is an expression of the entire truth of our lives. It doesn't really make any difference what it is that we choose to focus on, but it ought to be something pretty basic, something like eating or sex or money, if for no other reason that these concerns are likely to arise quite frequently in our lives and to give us a lot of grist for the mill. Parshat Re'eh has some interesting things to say about eating, for example, that might be helpful in this regard. After the ancient Israelites offered a sacrifice, they were bidden to eat it, but, quote, "...only all that your soul desires." Unquote. This is a strange phrase, is it not? Only all that your soul desires? What could it mean? All that your soul desires seems to suggest an unlimited condition. What, then, is the force of the limiting only in this sentence? I think that the Torah is saying here that we should only eat until we are satiated. Quote, you shall eat and you shall reach the point of satiety, and then you shall bless the Lord your God, unquote. This familiar imperative is also found in Parshat Re'eh, and it expresses the same thing. We should eat to the point of satiety, but not beyond that point. We should eat only what our soul desires, only what our body requires, and not what our unconscious desires bid us to eat. I think it's a very rare thing that we eat out of hunger these days, and it is even rarer that we stop eating when our hunger is slaked. At a rabbinical retreat once, a man gave me a stress-measuring device called a biodot. The Bio-Dot was a tiny piece of paper treated with a chemical that responded to changes in temperature by changing color. The idea was that when we were under stress, our fight-or-flight instinct rushed all the blood in the extremities of the body where it would be needed. All this blood rushing to our hands raised the temperature there, so when we were under stress, the Bio-Dot registered this change in temperature by turning black. In happier, more relaxed states, the blood settled back into the heart and the inner organs, leaving the hands much cooler. At such times the biodot turned green, and then finally, when we were in the deepest state of relaxation, a radiant cerulean blue. Back from the retreat I watched the biodot change in color as I went about my life for several weeks. I noticed, for example, that as soon as I walked into my synagogue, the dot turned a livid, menacing black. It made no difference what I did there. I could pray, I could meditate for hours, but just being in the building threw me into a deep state of stress. Conversely, there were activities that were just as dependable for producing the bright blue color that indicated a state of relaxation so deep it bordered on bliss. Chief among these was eating. Whenever I ate, the bio dot turned its most radiant blue. Clearly, eating was an activity with profound emotional and spiritual reverberations, and just as clearly it was an activity that resided at the opposite end of the emotional spectrum from stress. Suddenly it seemed pretty obvious why eating often becomes something other than the simple act of satisfying our physical hunger. Eating is a fast palliative for the stress that overwhelms us, a surrogate for the emotional and spiritual nourishment we need and never receive, a way of feeling our physicality in a world that all too rarely permits us to do so. In short, the act of eating is a gateway to some of our deepest feelings. This is why, if we just make a simple resolve only to eat in truth during the month of Elul, to eat only when we are truly hungry, quote, only all that your soul desires, unquote, I think we'll be amazed how much of the truth of our lives will dredge up. What a complex of repressed feeling and dysfunction this simple focus will bring floating up, to the forefront of our consciousness. Money can also be another fruitful object of mindful focus. Recently, I enrolled in a computerized banking service. Every day, the computer shows me a complete breakdown of every financial transaction I make, every penny I spend. I find that I am no longer able to entertain fantasies about how I spend money. The computer rubs my nose in the truth of it every day. Every day, I have to face the reality of my neurotic compulsions and dependencies. Every day, I have to look at a very precise record of what is really important to me, what my priorities really are. A very different matter in most cases from what I imagine them to be. The truth of our lives is reflected in everything we do. And if we focus on even one small part of our lives, it brings up the entire truth of it. So we can pray, we can meditate, and we can set aside a moment every day for reflection, or we can simply choose one thing in our life and live that one small aspect in truth. And then watch in amazement as the larger truth of our life begins to emerge. The truth is, every moment of our life carries with it the possibility of a great blessing and a great curse. A blessing if we live in truth, a curse if we do not. This is the time of year we are bidden to know the truth, In fact, we are commanded to do so. Re'eh, look, pay attention, for I have put before you a great blessing and a considerable curse right there in the moment before you. All that's required of you is to see what's in front of our face and to choose the blessing in it. That's this beautiful excerpt from the book by Alan Liu. This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, The Days of Oz, A Journey of Transformation. I highly recommend that book. I might uh, share a little bit more from that book in the coming weeks as we get closer to the high holidays. The second thing I wanted to share today uh, was uh, a little poetry that I wrote um, during my experience with... Joey Weisenberg and Rabbi Deborah Sachs Mintz and others during the Rising Song Institute Summer Gathering, which took place at Bedam Shalom in White Plains, New York on August 21st, this past Sunday. It was an amazing experience, Um, like around 150 people singing together. Uh, At first, I was a little reticent because we all had to wear masks, and um, I thought I was going to go and just listen and maybe gain some ideas for music for high holidays and some professional development opportunities. Um, But I just slowly started to sing a little at a time. I said, okay, I'll just sing a little bit, and then a little led to a little more to a little more, and then by the end, I was completely singing And I also uh, had an experience where uh, I had a deep emotional catharsis from the music and singing, uh, and I realized that it was much deeper than just professional development that I was undergoing there, and that uh, music is so powerful, uh, such a powerful way to open us up spiritually and emotionally. And uh, I really... Felt transformed through the experience of singing together, and I felt spiritually enlivened uh, through that experience, and not just in a um, not just in a sort of ecstatic way where I was avoiding my difficult emotions. I was actually encountering some difficult emotions I was having through the process of singing, and through some of these songs that I was singing and uh, I was having an emotional catharsis. So I wanted to uh, read... I wrote a a bunch of poetry on Sunday, but I just wanted to start by reading one of the poems that I wrote, and maybe in the coming weeks I'll read some more of the poems that I wrote. Uh, I wanted to start with the first one that I wrote, which is uh, about music, and how it is that uh, music has evolved to become what it is. Uh, I, I think that's enough of an introduction. How is it that this flesh has learned to sing? Lungs pulling in air, vibrating the cords in the throat, that once grunted for basic necessities for food... How is it that crying out in pain transforms into a beautiful melody? A scream becomes a song. And not only that, people joined along in harmony, two or three or 120, beautifully resonating, vibrating, flesh-singing matter. Somehow, this is where it all started, and this is where we are all going. Sof ma'aseh b'machshava t'chila, The end is wrapped up in the beginning and the beginning in the end an Ouroboros of vibrating matter and energy. The song is, was, will be always calling continually into being. So that's the first poem I wrote. uh, Totally unedited. That's how I wrote it. Uh, And uh, that was sort of the beginning of when I started to get into the music and I just remembered how amazing and profound it is just to be singing in a room with people in harmony. Um, It's something that I really didn't do a lot of in the past uh, two years during the COVID times, two and a half years, I should say now. Um, And I started to do it again a bit, through leading services at at Pleasantville Community Synagogue and other places. But this was by far the most uh, profound and intense experience I've had of singing and playing music with others in that time, uh, and even longer than that time. Uh, And it was quite, quite profound. So uh, with that, um, I part ways with you for this week. Thank you for joining me. As always, this has been Rabbi Ben Newman with the Neshama Project Podcast. Until next time.